Hi, and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. Today, we welcome Carol Ward, founder and international director of Favor of God's Ministries. It's an indigenous missions movement in northern Uganda and South Sudan. Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. You are a third-generation missionary. You grew up in the Philippines in a militant Muslim area where your parents were Wycliffe Bible translators. And also noted your grandparents spent 30 years as missionaries in Shanghai, China. When and how did God confirm his call in your life? There had to be a specific call in your life that you believe this is what God was calling you to, right? That's right. Even as a child at 12 years old, I felt a real yearning to take Jesus to where Jesus has never been heard before. We hear about him every day, but there's thousands of tribes deep in the jungle, which is, I grew up in the jungle, but around the world, and they've never even heard his name. And so my longing was, use me, Lord, in one of those places. Fast forward, I got my nursing degree, worked in Oklahoma and did home missions, and later found myself on the field fulfilling that dream. Well, as you grew up in the Philippines, you witnessed the oppressed, uh, widows, orphans, victims of war. As a young girl, how did all of that stir your heart? heart, witnessing all of that pain and suffering. That's all I ever knew. So I just figured that was life. And Jesus came to walk with people in their pain. He was touched with their weakness, touched with the feeling of their infirmities. And that's what moved him to compassion and to power. And so I just thought that was normal. But my heart broke over hurting people. And that's what led me to go into nursing. And as a child, of course, you grew up in a missionary home, which is a little bit different than your typical average American home, especially when you grew up in a jungle life. Now, my kids spent some time on the mission field. We lived on the island of Guam with Transworld Radio Ministries. But that ministry was much in the way of life and living was more like in the U.S. compared to what you did. But what are some values and things your parents kept? You kind of have this mixed culture. You're American, but you're living in a different Mm -hmm. country. When we we lived there, it was like, Paul, when I go to Rome, I do as the Romans. And Wycliffe is so good about just dropping you in the jungle and you become like the tribe. So you live like them, talk like them, a house up on stilts, you know, so the wild animals don't get you and you adapt the culture, the customs, everything except the religion. And so that was very normal to me growing up speaking their language. But I grew up in a home. I was very privileged to grow up in a home with a father who was a man of prayer, a man of prayer and fasting and a man of faith. He lived on his knees. There was a price on his head. He lived in the middle of death danger, never had any fear. So this was my role model in the midst of terrorism, which it was terrorism. I didn't know that as a child because we didn't have any fear. Tell me about maybe some early childhood relationships with those from that culture, people that you remember that were a special part of your life, maybe still are to this day. The Datu Tower was the chief of the village. Of, of course, Muslims have many wives. He had many wives. Some of his children were my closest friends. We'd go out in the village. Of course, I didn't wear shoes to, or sli- even slippers till I was 12. Just jungle life. It was really like, a little bit like Tarzan, swinging on vines and you know jumping in waterfalls and riding on the back of buffaloes. and Very wild life, but it was very normal to me, and I loved it. <laughs> we played marbles in the village and rubber bands, and I'd make slingshots and go hunting with my brothers. You didn't have to worry about a... a- a video game or anything like today's youth. I mean, <laughs> no electricity. <laughs> you had all the excitement that you could imagine there. Yeah. Well, after moving to the United States from the Philippines, uh, you earned a nursing degree and began therapeutic foster parenting for emotionally disturbed and traumatized children. And you continued that work for the next 20 years. 
You know, that's a pretty noble, caring, serving other people type work, Mm. but it wasn't enough for you. No, I did that in addition to bringing heroin addicts in off the street. And I take these girls in and begin discipling them. I started an assisted living for elder care, Alzheimer's specifically, doing numerous home missions. But my heart still pained to say, Jesus, there are tribes dying that have never heard of you. Never thought I'd be able to go, but... It happened. Well, in 2002, you moved to Uganda to serve as the interim director of a Bible college in southern Uganda, and you had that oversight for 42 portable Bible schools in five East African countries. That was all through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ, known as CRU today. It was during that year of service that God began to answer a cry in your heart. And I love this quote here. Lord, let me lay my life down for you where no one else wants to go to do what no one else wants to do. Wait a minute, Carol. I mean, come on now. You're already serving God faithfully on the mission field right there in Africa, yet you prayed where no one else wants to go and no one else wants to do. Were you temporarily insane? (laughs) <laughs> God took me seriously, but yes. but my heart cry was, send me where it's needed the most, because Matthew twenty four fourteen, this gospel must be preached to every tribe and tongue, and then the coming of the Lord. And so nine out of ten missionaries goes to urban reached or available where Jesus is available. One out of ten goes to the bush. And I grew up reading Fox's Book of Martyrs. Those were my bedtime stories. I would cling to that book and pray. Lord, I'll be a martyr. I'll go wear bamboo curtain, iron curtain, Muslim, communist, wherever. But let me have the privilege of serving you like these heroes of faith. That was my passion. The war in North Uganda claimed thousands of lives and saw 50,000-plus children that were abducted, while the missions and the government agencies and the Westerners relief groups were leaving that war zone. That's exactly where you moved. Yes, sir. I heard about that war after I was serving a year on the Campus Crusade for Christ. And they told me, oh, that's no man's land. You cross the river, you fall in a dark hole. So I knew then, okay, that's the place no one else wants to go. And when I called the U.S. Embassy, they said, you can't go. I said, is that a suggestion or command? And they said, that's a strong suggestion. I said, I'm going. And they literally told me that I'm crossing your name off. You're as good as dead. And no mission organization would support me. They said, to come home in a body bag? Are you crazy? But I went. Where did you know where to go, how to live? What were the daily conditions like during that time? The students that had come from that area down to the Bible campus directed me. So I just knew it was a straight shot north. Somebody had given me a vehicle. I got in that car, started driving with the Lord. I couldn't even find a national to go with me. They were terrified because this guy was a satanic dictator up there, Joseph Coney. And so the Lord was with me, and I knew he was leading me. I had total peace. I did fight fear, and I struggled. And I said, well, Lord, you'd be scared too. And I said, give me more faith. He said, you don't need more faith. He said, you need more love. Perfect love casts out fear. I said, baptize me in love, Lord. And he baptized me in love in that car. I've missed ambushes for almost 20 years by minutes and seconds. I still go into war zones. I've never had fear since then because of that baptism of love. You know, and some followers of Christ might say, well, am I less of a Christian? Am I I'm not doing God's will because I'm not willing to step into something like that? Obedience is the key. 
God calls each one of us to do different things. And he says in the word, if I even just give you a cup of water and you give it in my name, great is your reward. So the key is to be very faithful and obedient wherever he's planted you. And also to see hurting people are everywhere around you. Yes. And everywhere you live and move daily from marketplace to job is your mission field. Carol, after six months of prayer there, Ugandans came to you with desperate visions for reaching their people. Yes. Uh, they wanted to disciple, to provide education and evangelism. I mean, what was that moment like? After God ended the war because of prayer, I thought, oh, I'm finished now. Because all I wanted to do was pray and see the war stop so that life could go on. God stopped the war. Now they're saying, come help me reach my people. And I said, Lord, I wasn't prepared for any of this. I didn't have an agenda. And he said, you're following me, aren't you? I left 99 to go after one. How do I do this, Lord? I don't even have any money. And he said, I'm calling them out of their graves and giving them life like Lazarus. You go loose their grave clothes. So I said, okay, show me how to do that. So one national after another would come. And I said, well, what's in your heart? They've never been able to dream. They're in survival mode trying to just stay alive during this war. They said, I think I want to do a Bible school. Okay, good. Bring the pastors, sit here during the day, mattresses at night. I'll get you some photocopied curriculum. Another one, I want to do a children's home. World Vision came to us and said, would you take these total orphan? Another one wanted to do trauma counseling. We just found a way and God began leading. We had explosive revival in five years and 75 full-time indigenous missionaries. Now, only God can do that. Oh, praise God. <laughs> only God could do that. Yes. Well, how difficult was it to obtain the government-required registration? Because once you got there, didn't you have to have some special permission to work there? I did. I umbrellaed under the founder of prayer mountain out of Kampala because he was a great friend of mine. So I brought it under a local indigenous organization already registered and then began filing my own. And it started with just Bible distribution, been out of circulation 20 years. So the process is about six months, but it happened. Okay. Tell me about the name Favor of God Ministries. How did you come up with that name? I had been fasting and praying for the North and I said, Lord, if I'm going to pray, I want the favor that Esther had. I'm praying in faith, and even the king said, half my kingdom, you can have it. So may I have the favor of Esther? I had just finished a three-day Esther fast. You can look in the book of Esther and see what that was like. No food, no water, crying out for this nation. And when they said, you need a name for the organization, instantly I said, we can only stay alive under the favor of God. Today in America, it is registered as Favor International. But in Uganda, we are still Favor of God. What are some of the challenges, Carol, engaging people who have suffered such traumatic emotional pain due to the war? A healing process has to happen, but God took very broken people and turned them into the most phenomenal leaders that we have. Some of them have been with me 18 years. Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones was like speaking hope into hopeless people. So they have to be healed, first of all, spiritually, come to Jesus. Then there's the mental healing, the emotional healing from trauma. Jesus' first words in Isaiah 61 were, The Spirit of the Lord's on me to bind up the broken hearted. So many people have a broken heart. And Jesus' first thing before miracles and raising the dead was bind up the broken hearts. Because wounded people wound people. 
And you can't use crippled people on a spiritual military, you know, zone to take the gospel. Yes. So wholeness, yes. body, yes. soul, and spirit. Yes. We watch physical healings, everything in the Bible, we've seen it. Emotional healings, mental healings, and then healing of their destiny. They have a calling, and they didn't know it. Tell me something about the indigenous people who first came to you for help. Something about their character, their resolve to help their own people. They're ready to die for their faith because over there when they get saved, it's like I've just signed up for God's army. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. What are my marching orders, Lord? Because they've come out of darkness, they know what everybody else is living in. We've got to rescue them. We've got to rescue them. We say now to our Bible school students, smell your fist, and if it doesn't smell like fire, you're not living close enough to hell. Because Jude 23 says, mm. pull them out of the flames. Wow. And these people, are they're laying their life down. And you know what one once said that they're getting executed in Sudan because we're sending missionaries up there? Two of them, two pastors, underground missionaries taking the gospel. Whole village is getting saved now. They're both arrested in prison. One is to be executed, the other to be released. He said, brother, what made you do it when you knew you were going to lose your life for the gospel? And he said these words. He said, my eternity is secure. Theirs is not. Why wouldn't I give what is temporal to gain what is eternal? Carol, what a wake-up call, especially the church in America. We are sleeping, aren't we? Yes. And Proverbs says, an unwise son sleeps during harvest. If Jesus said it's not four months to harvest, it's now. Any farmer knows that if it's time to get the grain in now, tomorrow it will be rotten. And we're losing eternal reward as harvest is rotting in front of our eyes because we can't get to it fast enough. They're desperate for the gospel. We have the laborers, and we got to hold the, the lifelines. I said, if you hold the ropes, I'll go to hell and back and pull them out. And she said, well, you just go to hell, and I'll hold the ropes. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> Carol, what about the reconciliation and unity among the believers and the tribes? Did that come like a flood, or was it a process? Did it take time? It's a process. Healing is a process, and so is restoration a process. There's a lot of reconciliation movements, but you know what? You can't reconcile two people until the hearts have been healed. Because if you're bleeding and hemorrhaging and broken hearts, you can't join two people together. So the trauma healing, based on forgiveness, began healing the heart. Reconciliation began automatically. And we're still watching that now in South Sudan. We're asked to do this in the military. And we're watching people lay down guns in a matter of a week because of the depth of forgiveness and the work of the Holy Spirit, it's possible. That is so beautiful. Well, in 2007, God led you to begin extending the ministry into Sudan before it became liberated. And we have seen and heard of the atrocities in Darfur, the plight of the Nuba people in central mountains of Sudan, the thousands of refugees in southern Sudan. I mean, as you mentioned, with so many hurting people, misplaced people. Where do you start? Where do you begin? Turn the light on. It's the deepest darkness I've ever felt. And I thought, God, spiritual warfare, how do you slice through this darkness? He said, what would you do if you walked into a pitch dark room? He said, you're not going to start screaming. You're going to look for a light switch. The word of God is the light. So we get thousands. To this day, we've distributed almost 200,000 Bibles in over 20 languages, written and audio. And we started raising up an army to say, take the light. Take the light. And they bring healing. They bring evangelism. They bring prayer. They bring discipleship, women empowerment. 
The only way to overcome evil is with good. Carol, tell me about how pivotal those national prayer gatherings in Juba were. Oh, phenomenal. We started, of course, in Uganda, and that's when God ended the LRA war. So I just carried on over because prayer is our foundation. It's our life. We live by it. It's not an option. It is the breath and the sweet communion and fellowship with Jesus, but it's our lifeline. We stay alive only because of prayer. Whoever is led by the Spirit, the voice of God, are my children, Romans 8, 14. So if we're not, don't hear his voice and know his voice in that constant communion, we're dead. And we know that. And so when we hold these prayer gatherings, we rent the main stadium in town. We call the officials, government, church, bishops, leaders. God gives a topic. I write a scripture, a skeleton for it, 77 hours of prayer. About a thousand people gather. And God does historical governmental shifts. He stopped Ebola in 2007, fifth day into a seven-day prayer gathering. Hospital called, said they've been released negative. Who was that praying? I said a thousand people. Ebola has not come again there. Now in South Sudan, we started in 2015 with prayer gatherings. The next one we did was in 2019. One week after that, Bashir, the dictator that was massacring all of South Sudan for 30 years in Khartoum, automatically dislodged. How do you do that after 30 years? One week after we finished. This year, we finished the week in July a thousand people just this July. Wow. One week later, the death sentence is lifted for Muslims becoming Christians. These nations are open for the gospel wow. like never before. This is so exciting to hear this news, Carol. Something you don't hear on the six o'clock news here locally at no. all. Well, help us understand, if you will, a little about the tribal life itself. Give us a context of the framework, what it's like for those who live in a tribal setting. It's a clan setting. There's nomadic cattle keepers. There's naked warriors. There's farmers, 64 languages, 64 tribes. So each one can have a bit of a different culture. But the tribe, as far as just overall African culture, is a family unit that has this property or farmland or squatters. And then as the sons get married, they bring their wives into it. It is polygamous. There's not necessarily marriage institutions, but the clan grows like that as the husbands come with their wives. And if anybody's killed or died, those orphans now become the responsibility of that family, as well as the elderly. So one family clan may be 30 to 50. People. So do you have to get permission with the tribal leaders to go into their communities or the people you're working with? You're already seeing this revival breakout where they're already believers in Christ. They're coming to you naturally. They're begging us to come. And now we have a full-time indigenous missionary staff in South Sudan of over 100 and 150 missionary field missionaries. So we have about 250. We have 30 to 40 tribes represented on our missionary team. And they're all one and they're all united. So they are key. They speak the language. So we send them back now, leading the missionary teams into their own language and ethnic groups. Doors are wide open. People are crying and begging because they're seeing the fruit of 
what the kingdom of God is doing and the gospel. I believe those portable Bible schools are still an active part of your ministry. They are the main part of our ministry because Jesus' command, make disciples of all nations. We used to do crusades and a million people would come, literally. The government counted them. That's wonderful. But if you're not discipling them, they're not going to be producing disciples where Jesus is looking for fruit that remains. And so unless you make disciples and they make disciples, that's not multiplication. And the only way the gospel is going to grow is multiplication. We must make disciples. Describe, if you will, these portable Bible schools, their function and how they work on a daily basis. We take two missionaries, drop them in the middle of the bush. We've got 70 Bible schools going on right now in South Sudan as I speak new mountains, Ethiopia, and going into Darfur right now. So two missionaries go into a remote village where even danger, bullets are flying. The most needed areas we target, we get a map out, target it. They go in with prayer. They get the chief's permission. They notify the community. Are there any believers here? If there's not, they start door to door. If there are, they gather them and say, go door to door with us. They mobilize for two weeks, and then they take enrollment for a discipleship class, and they're going to do it for two months. We do a two-month. It's very in-depth. They get five hours of discipleship training. We do literacy, community health, trauma counseling. After the discipleship class is over, everybody gets a Bible. We have a big water baptism and a bonfire. The witch doctors that get saved are burning their paraphernalia. So we say baptisms and bonfires. And the village is converted. And now they're the missionaries. And we see them winning three or four other villages in six months time. This is starting churches. Yes. And the church is the discipleship factory. So as long as the church is multiplied, and it doesn't mean church construction, it means church planting, and they grow, then they multiply themselves just like the New Testament church. Just like the New Testament church, this model you're seeing is what Jesus commanded us to do, but we're not doing it. No. And somebody said, have you packaged this? I said, why should I? God already did. And you know, he said, faith without works is dead. If we are hearers and not doers, we deceive ourselves. So we as Westerners walk in a lot of self-deception because we're not applying what we've heard. They take a little bit of knowledge and a tiny bit of money, and they can multiply the gospel because they take it seriously. If God said it, somebody picked up Matthew 10 and said, Jesus's command, go preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out devils, cleanse the lepers. That must be my job description. Let's go do it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go do it. Yes. Oh, my. Yes. What are the steps or condition of one's heart before someone can reach a new level of restoration and revival in their life. To take murderers from the bush and see that process happen is phenomenal. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. As long as they're open, the entrance of your word brings light. Open the eyes of my understanding so I can see the hope of my calling. So when they understand the truth and they receive the truth, we begin the discipleship process. Some of them come to our Bible college. Probably nine out of ten say, now God use me. I've got to take this message. The best missionaries to Muslim nations are newly converted Muslims, and they're running with it. Now they're leading our teams into Nuba Mountain. So we see that process anywhere from six months to a year. In fact, one, he was in the occult, an agent of Satan. 
deep, deep satanic, had caused over 400 deaths, human sacrifices. He gets saved, wins seven people to the Lord Jesus the first week. I'm going as a missionary. I said, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Keep on doing your missionary. Let's get him converted. But we got to disciple you, brother. So we get him grounded in the word. And then we mentor them. We send seasoned national missionaries with them side by side to the field and teach them hand on. And the work is so productive. I live in the trenches with the people and you teach character. I was going to say, even in the excitement of seeing the movement of God, like you're seeing in this transformation, it needs to be based and founded upon God's word. So that is such a crucial part, keeping it biblical according to God's word. It must be. And that's where we've gone astray as a nation here. In fact, our teams, which is almost 500 people, just finished 40 days of prayer and fasting for America. If we don't have the foundations, the rock, Jesus said, to build your life on, a community and a nation of the word, we're built on sand. We're going to shift. We're going to fall. We're going to go with every wind of doctrine. The foundation of the word, we say character is your contract if you're going to serve him. It's much more important than your gifts. God loves your gifts. He gave them to you. We're going to use them. We're going to discover them. Your character will keep you where your gifts can only take you. What are your plans of going back to Sudan, going back to Uganda? That's been my home for 19 years. I only come to the States about once a year for a couple months and run around and share what God's doing and try to provoke the Western church to godly jealousy because revival's coming to these nations out of hunger. Same thing can happen here. So stirring up, raising vision, partnership, that kind of thing, then I go right back over. So I'm going to (laughs) go. Well, how can we discover more about the organization Favor of God's Ministries? The best way, Favor International, F-A-V-O-R, R-I-N-T-L dot org. Giving, partnership, questions, newsletter, sign up, lots of history. If there's one thing our listeners could pray for you in the ministry for today, what would that be? Wisdom. Wisdom builds a house, Proverbs 24 says, and knowledge and understanding fill the rooms with every precious thing. And God's building nations. I want the wisdom of Solomon and the largeness of heart. First Kings 4.29 is Amen. my cry. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Carol, this has been great. God bless you, my dear sister. Thank you. Thank you for what you are doing for God's kingdom and allowing Amen. Christ to do through you to reach the people of Africa. Amen. Thank you, too. What an honor to be here. <laughs> we continue praying for this nation. Friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Today's Mid-South Viewpoint is brought to you by Navage. Just think about all the nasty stuff we breathe in every day. You know, the dust, allergens, bacteria, pollen, pollution. You know the things in Memphis here. What are we breathing? Well, if you wash your hands and brush your teeth every day, then why aren't you cleaning your nose to clean out all that junk that's trapped up in there? Let me tell you about this product. If you suffer from allergies, sinus infections, or are worried about what you're breathing in, it's called Navage. N-A-V-A-G-E. What's Navage? Well, it's the world's only nose cleaner with powered suction. People that have suffered from lifelong allergies call Navage a complete game changer. They are breathing more clearly, sleeping better, snoring less, and feeling a whole lot better. In fact, 90% of people who use Navage report feeling healthier. 
Now with cold and flu season just around the corner, why not make Navage part of your daily health routine? Experience what it's like to truly breathe better, sleep deeper, and feel healthier. Go ahead and visit Navage.com. That's Navage.com. Or you can find Navage at Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Target. Navage. N-A-V-A-G-E. 